Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the COVID-19 virus continues to spread across Canada, we recorded our first death, sadly. Italy is essentially shutting down. Tanya is a former Hamiltonian who is currently living in Rome. She joined us on the program to explain what's going on and how her family's dealing with life in Rome with COVID-19. The uh, elementary school teacher negotiations with the province are supposed to resume again this week. They plan on escalating strike action if they don't get any action after March break. And is today the day we find out who's going to lead the Democrats into the election this November in the states? Six states make their vote today, and if Biden wins, it could be over for Bernie. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As bad as things are in North America, and with the cancellations and, and a great deal of angst, I think, uh, we've heard stories about other parts of the world where their total shutdowns are starting to happen, and it has had an incredible impact on some major cities right around the world, including in Italy. Uh, the COVID-19 virus continues to spread across Canada, but uh, in Italy, of course, uh, essentially, it's, uh, they're almost in shutdown mode. It's bizarre if you've seen some of the, the pictures and some of the stories. And we wanted to bring you a first-hand account on what it's like over there right now and how they're dealing with it and how the residents are dealing with some of the things that are happening. And uh, I'm going to introduce you to Tanya Skurham, who is a uh, former Hamiltonian, actually, uh, who uh, lived and worked here in the city for a long time, for about the last five years. Uh, she's been living in Rome, and uh, she is experiencing exactly what we've been watching and talking about over the next, next uh, little while, and uh, we wanted to bring her on to give her an opportunity to talk to us about exactly what she's experiencing. Tanya, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you on the program today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. Well, welcome back to Hamilton, I guess, at least if I, uh, the radio airwaves anyway. Uh, talk to us a little bit. Of, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about about what you've seen and heard. I mean, uh, this is something that I, I think uh, concerned an awful lot of us when we started hearing about what was happening in Asia. Uh, then all of a sudden, uh, it just seemed to to magnify itself, and and Europe has seemed to be hit especially hard. What what are you seeing? What's happening in Rome these days, and and how is it affecting you? Um. Yes. Um. It's really. I've really seen the effect within the last. Um, three days. I've been trying as much as I can just to kind of keep normal and live life and not live in fear and panic. Um, but for example, on Sunday, uh, my partner Marco and I, we went out um, to Piazza di Spagna and Villa del Corso, which is a major shopping area, and it was deserted. Nobody was there. Nobody was in shops. Nobody was in Piazza di Spagna. Nobody was walking around. On Sunday evening, we actually went for dinner um, in a restaurant in Campo di Fiori, which is in the heart of Rome, and we were the only two in the restaurant. So, um, again, lots of people um, over the weekend have really been taking this seriously and have really stopped um, going into public um, over fear of catching, catching this virus. So what, is that? what are the authorities telling people to do there? Um, yes. Last night, um, Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti, he made an announcement on TV um, urging Italy um, to stay at home. Um, it's all of Italy now, not just the north. All of Italy is a protected area. Um, you're not supposed to leave your region and you're supposed to stay home and only leave your house if absolutely necessary for work or for health reasons. Um, because right now, as we all know, the outbreak is in the north, and um, the north is the heart of Italy. It's the most functioning part of the city, and um, unfortunately, right now, the hospitals are reaching their limits, and um, 
I guess they're really trying to stop the spread to the south because if this outbreak really heads to the south of Italy, they don't have the hospitals or the resources or the capability to handle such an outbreak that's happening right now in the north. So, uh, for example, uh, Marco and I, we went to the grocery store this morning. There was a line outside. Everyone was keeping their distances. Um, we've been asked to keep a one-meter distance from people that you don't know. It was kind of a one-in, one-out policy. Um, people were keeping their space, being very respected in the grocery store. And also, too, which I noticed, which is really nice, nobody's hoarding food. We're just buying what we need, supplies that we need for a couple of days. But no one is hoarding or buying huge amounts of food, um, which I feel is very nice and respectful. This is fascinating, though. That uh, is that mandated, or was it suggested that there be like a, a one meter, in other words, about a three-and-a-half-foot separation between people that just to try to avoid that, that human contact? Yes. Actually, the government has imposed it. Um, they made a decree last Wednesday uh, when they shut down schools and universities. And then the day after, the Thursday the 5th, they shut down all disco cinemas and theaters. And within the decree, they imposed that everyone needs to keep a one-meter distance. So restaurants have been taking out tables, moving spaces, so everyone is in one meter of each other. And um, I just feel people are more aware of it and respecting people's personal personal spaces. Well, obviously people so. are taking this to heart though, aren't they, Tanya? I mean, if uh, if you go to a major shopping area in downtown Rome and there's nobody there for all intents and purposes and you're the only two in a restaurant and uh, we know what the restaurants are like, uh, especially in Rome uh, for the tourist uh, trade, uh, it's it's got to be just kind of eerie to see what's happening here. It is really eerie. Um, we, we have a term, Rome in August. Um, Rome in August is normally empty because it's just tourists there. All Romans, all Italians leave because it's too hot. And it was literally Roman August in the beginning of March. Um, no, one's, no one's here. No one's leaving the house over fear um, of catching this virus. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really sad, sad state for Italy and um, for the economy. Um, I really, really hope that the economy will recover. Um, but... I'm, unfortunately, I'm a little doubtful of this. Uh, you're a singer, uh, which is one of the reasons why you're over there, of course. And uh, yes. obviously, there's been a, a real, real impact on, on entertainment facilities, uh, let alone entertainment venues and, and, and the performers themselves. Uh, are things being canceled over there, too? Concerts, uh, places where people would ordinarily gather? I know Juventus played the, their game, I guess, last week in front of an empty stadium, uh, in an empty stadium, rather, because they were afraid of, uh, of getting crowds. Is, is that starting to magnify now and multiply? Yes, all major sporting events. There for 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 a while now, for a couple a couple of weeks, um, the soccer, sorry, the 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 soccer has not no no audience, no spectators are allowed. Um, all yeah, all pretty much cinemas, theaters have shut down. Um, for example, within ten days, my season has changed. I was singing for an event at the American Embassy on the 28th of February. This month of March, I had two major jazz concerts, both canceled. I'm assuming all my performances in April will be canceled, too. Um, I had a children's Disney show planned at the beginning of May at a theater, canceled. Um, I'm holding on hope. I have another um, performance at a theater on the 23rd of May, and I'm hoping that it will 
go on. I talked to the organizer of the theater last night, and she's hoping the same thing. But again, uh, we're just taking it day by day, week by week. But exactly um, all major social and arts, sports, all closed. Wow. You know, for somebody who's decided, hey, what a great time to go over to Europe, and then this happens, uh, because we know how busy some of those venues are. As you mentioned, whether it's a sports stadium, whether it's a Scala, I mean, there's a number of different things that way you're going to find a great deal of tourists, uh, yet the streets Mm -hmm. are barren. You have to wonder what these people are doing. I guess they're staying in their hotels. Yeah, I guess. Um, they are staying in their hotels. There's probably a few tourists going around, um, enjoying the empty streets, the empty monuments. Um, but all museums have been closed. So, for example, the Coliseum will be closed because it's an open-air museum. Um, again, like on Sunday, Papa Francesco, sorry, Pope Francis, he didn't give his Sunday message from the papal study window as, norm- as normal because they do not want crowds. Gathering. And on a given Sunday, there'd be, what, tens of thousands of people in St. Peter's Square for something like that? Exactly. And this Sunday, I think there's maybe a hundred, if that. That's, uh, it, it's just, the p- picture that creates in your mind when you hear the, the descriptor of what's actually happening here is just mind-boggling, really, uh, because we hear these things, but when you're actually living it and experiencing what's happening, is there is there any indication at all, Tanya, as to how long this is going to go on? I mean, are, are the are the number of identified cases uh, increasing, or is it static? Uh, what's 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 the status there? Um, supposedly the, ju- uh, the death toll jumped from 366 to 463 on Monday. Um, the number of confirmed infected also increased by 24% from Sunday. But again, these are all sources that I'm getting from uh, news sources. Um, a lot uh, right now, um, all universities, all schools, all like discos, clubs, um, cinemas, everything shut down until the 4th of April. Um, again, we do not know um, when things will get back to normal, hopefully soon. A lot of us are hoping with the spring weather and the warmer weather, the virus will die down. Um, But right now, unfortunately, cases are on the rise rather than on the downfall. So I think until everything kind of comes down a bit and levels tailor off, um, until then I feel that we'll probably be in lockdown mode. How are you handling this yourself? I mean, obviously, this is having an impact on your <laughs> career, uh, but uh, I, I, you do get out and about, maybe not as much as you ordinarily would, but are you, are you, are you falling into the self-imposed uh, quarantines that many other people seem to be doing, too? Um, you know, I was trying not to think about it and let it kind of take over my life. Um, I've been trying to stay as positive as I can. Of course, when venues have been contacting me to say, look, we're really sorry, we have to cancel the show, it broke my heart because um, any artist knows the amount of time and effort goes into booking and planning a season. Um, you know, right now, I am, we, me and my partner, we are um, taking the advice of the Prime Minister. Um, my boyfriend, he is working from home. I am... Hopefully, I'm just, I also teach English, so I'm waiting for my school to see if I can do some online lessons. Um, I still go for my walks every morning because I need to keep keep sane. 
Um, I'm not going to lie to you. Yesterday, I kind of broke down a little bit and cried, um, especially when I saw the fear and panic um, in people on the streets, the few people that are on the streets, uh, friends, close friends of mine. Um, you know, my boyfriend, he went into a little bit of a panic when this lockdown happened because his father works in the Tuscany region and his family's from Rome. So he was worried about his dad being stuck there. So, um, you know, I'm trying to keep calm. I'm trying to think rationally all the time, just trying to breathe and um, not let it affect me and hoping that come, come, come the spring, uh, we can recover and um, I will be singing <laughs> more than I am now. So that's all, that's all you can do is just hope for the best. You mentioned the panic in people's eyes. Obviously, as this continues day after day after day, uh, what some people would say is an inconvenience is now starting to become rather worrisome, I guess, because you don't know how long this is going to happen or, or who it's going to impact. Exactly. Um, exactly. I think most people right now, they're worried about their parents, their grandparents, uh, the elderly. Um, for most of us, you know, um, who are healthy, who are young, um, you know, this is, this is a flu, we can get over it, but it's certain groups of people that, yeah, this actually is, is a concern and they do need to worry about it. Are they, uh, but I think, go ahead. Sorry. But I think right now the fear and panic that's happening in Italy is the fact that in the North in Lombardia and Milan, this is the heart. This is the most functioning portion of the city. Um, they're at capacity. They can no longer handle the situation. So I think that's where the fear is coming from. So if this virus spreads to the south, to the central regions, what's going to happen since the healthcare system is already at its upper limit? Uh, when you walk down the streets, uh, when you have your morning walk, are, are people wearing surgical masks? Are they taking those sorts of precautions? <laughs> yes. Um, You'll see people wearing surgical masks. You'll see wearing people wearing plastic gloves. Um, some people use a scarf, and they think that is um, that's good enough protection. Um, I am not wearing a mask. I'm not wearing gloves um, because I've read statistics that said masks should not be worn by healthy people. They should be worn by people carrying the virus. So I'm respecting that. A lot of people now have hand sanitizer. They're sanitizing their hands every couple of minutes. Um, right now, I'm just um, focusing on basics, good, good proper hygiene, always washing your hands, soap, 20 seconds, hot water, and just trying to be as sensible as possible. And stay healthy. That seems exactly. to be, that's the, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the ultimate goal here. <laughs> I, 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 we don't know what's going to happen here in, in North America, of course. As you know, the number of cases that I've identified here are much less than, than what you've been experiencing over the next little while. But uh, it didn't look like it was going to be bad in Italy five, three, four weeks ago either. And then look what's occurred here, too. So uh, we will continue to be vigilant about that. Uh, Tanya, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, I hope things do turn out for you. Hope you get back to work. I hope the economy gets back, and I hope the number of cases start to finally dissipate and we can uh, move on with our lives. It's a pretty tense time, though, and uh, rather daunting, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And uh, thank you so much for having me. And all I can say to people is just remain calm and just think sensibly during this time. Okay, Tanya, so thanks again. We will, we will get through it. Thank you. Look thank after you yourself, won't you?
Thank you. Tana Zingram, of course, former Hamiltonian who's living in Rome right now. She's teaching and, uh, and singing over there. Well, she's not right now, simply because there's no work. Everything's been canceled over there. All performances, anything, anything at all, where a crowd would gather, performance, a movie theater, a, a concert by somebody like Tanya, canceled over there. And we're getting to that point here now, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, with uh, the turmoil that's being caused, of course, by the uh, COVID-19 virus, we just talked with uh, Tanya, of course, who's living in Rome, and we know what's happening here at home. Uh, there are many other things, too, that are having an impact on people's lives, uh, not the least of which, of course, are the uh, the rotating strikes and the turmoil between the provincial government and Ontario teachers, uh, high school teachers, elementary teachers, uh, Catholic and uh, public boards, uh, are all looking for contracts right now, and uh, it's not going well, frankly. Uh, some people had thought that when Education Minister Stephen Lecce made his announcement, yes, or last week, rather, uh, that they were uh, going to capitulate and not make uh, the e-learning pro- courses mandatory and that they were not going to tamper too much anyway with class sizes. A lot of folks thought, well, that's it then. Teachers will take that and everything will be happy and we'll all live happily ever after. Well, that has not happened for a variety of reasons. Some people still wondering why the picket lines are going up and why the one-day strikes may continue. Well, negotiations do begin this week with the uh, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario with the government. But uh, the ETFO warns that if uh, a deal is not reached, a strike action will escalate, not only continue, but escalate. Jeff Sorensen is the president of the Hamilton-Wentworth Elementary Teachers, local here at the uh, Hamilton area, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, shed some light on this. Jeff, thanks for the time. Glad you could join us today. Oh, my pleasure. Good morning, Bill. Listen, you've seen some of the feedback, I'm sure, on social media. The day after Mr. Lecce made this announcement, everybody seemed to think, well, what's the matter with the teachers? Why don't they just take the offer and, and go back to work? Uh, how do you, uh, please clarify that and, and address that, would you? Sure. Well, <clears throat> it's um, not truly an offer. Again, what he says to the media, what he says during press conferences, does not align with what he says uh, at the bargaining table. Uh, they're not real solid offers. For example, the full-day kindergarten one, it's, it's something that he's refused to put in writing in terms of uh, making a commitment uh, to keeping the current structure for full-day kindergarten. Uh, so, you know, and again, he's uh, still battling us in terms of we're trying to get back to ground zero. It's not even that we're trying to make gains at this point. We're just trying to make sure the education system is as good this year, next year, as it was last year. Uh, now, class averages are still going up, uh, for, as far as he's concerned, yeah. Well, and averages is the, uh, the key element there, that, and that's the, the operative word. Uh, you know, when he mentions 22, 28, whatever it's going to be, yeah. that doesn't mean every class is going to be 28. You've got some that are much more than that. Uh, some of the specialized classes, of course, are well. Ergo, you have an average on this. But there's still concern about about that ratio, isn't there? There is, and, and for grades four to eight, there there never has been a class size limit. It's always been an average, and we've always been trying to fight to get that average lower. I mean, ideally, would it have class size caps just like kindergarten to grade three and in secondary? Absolutely. Uh, but we hear stories, and we know of stories uh, where classes are, are mid to high 30s. So to, to believe that all classes are sitting at 24, 25, that, that's just a mistake. Uh, it's it's not really the reality of our students. Has there been any indication at all? I guess I've heard this from other teachers. We talked uh, with Harvey Bischoff, the uh, secondary school teachers uh, union president as well, uh, last week just after Mr. Lecce made his announcement, of course, Jeff, and uh, he yeah. said the very same thing that you did. He says what he says at a, you know, at Electon or Queen's Park is not the same as what we're hearing across the bargaining table. Is there any indication at all that, that, that this is he's going to put pen to paper and actually say here that here's the offer with these things that he just talked about? 
I, I'm hopeful. He made his announcement, uh, or we heard from the mediator that he'd like to go back to the table minutes before uh, we made our announcement yesterday. And that announcement was that unless he does come back to the table and make meaningful uh, and have meaningful discussions by the 23rd, uh, which is the end of our, our March break, uh, that we would be going on to the next phase, which would be rotating strikes. So I'm hopeful. I mean, we have a week here. We've given him two weeks without uh, any uh, strike action except for our work to roll. We were hoping that for the last two weeks he would have reached out. He hasn't done so. We, he has another week, week and a half now. Uh, and if he makes use of it in productive terms, uh, we can avoid uh, rotating strikes when we come back. Let me, on a piece, uh, question the process here, if you could, just make yeah. another clarification for us. There, there is somebody, there's there's somebody in the middle here, who's a negotiator who's trying to get this thing together. Can either side be ordered back, or is he just waiting, for, or is she waiting for the phone to ring? She's waiting for the phone to ring. So she's uh, she has said in the past that... Uh, when the other side uh, calls her up and are willing to uh, move or willing to talk, uh, she'd be willing to call the other group to the table. Uh, we've had an open uh, statement to her, which is we are ready to talk at any point, 24-7. We're willing to come back to the table at any point, uh, any point where the government says something other than what they were saying last August. Um, and so I'm hopeful, given that we got the message, that perhaps this time... Uh, Minister of Ed, Premier, have decided that uh, they actually do want to have negotiations as, a fo- as opposed to impositions. Well, that's interesting because one of the other talking points that Mr. Lecce seems to be repeating on a pretty regular basis is that he wants you guys to come back to the table. In other words, he's, he's, he's inferring that you're the holdup here, that you, your union <laughs> is not willing to negotiate. Uh, but basically, you've already told the, the mediator here that we're, we're willing we're, and we're willing and able, I guess. So you're waiting for the government to make a move here. Absolutely. I mean, their first uh, position last August, uh, and has been ever since, is strips, cuts to education. Uh, and we've, uh, of course, we're not accepting the cuts. Uh, but we, right now, like I said, we're trying to get back to ground zero. There hasn't even been a discussion yet of, hey, how can we improve education? How can we make it better for students and for teachers? Uh, we're just, you know, we have our, our, our finger in the dam trying to hold the water back as it is. So uh, to say that we're not willing to talk, complete falsehood. Uh, we're willing to talk, uh, but but we're not willing to, to have strips to education. Uh, you know, and I don't think voters are. I don't think parents are. Uh, they're in our side. They understand that. They didn't vote for uh, bigger class sizes and, 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 and things like that. So um, ball's in his court. Jeff, the uh, story that I just ref- referred to just as we started the conversation here, of course, uh, is that uh, it looks as if negotiations are going to begin. Does that indicate to us, then, that uh, the government is willing to sit down at the table? And they, uh, obviously you've maintained uh, your willingness to do that at the same time. It sounds as if there's a, a possibility here of something happening this week. I, I hope. Uh, like I said, we have uh, a week, a week and a half uh, until our uh, strike action possibly, potentially escalates. Of course, we don't want to do that. Uh, we would love to have a signed, negotiated deal uh, so that schools can go back and, and this disruption can stop. Um, but I, you know, we need to know that parents and parents need to know that you know this this wasn't created by us. This this problem wasn't a teacher or an education worker uh, creation. This is something that was squarely in the lap of, or sits squarely in the lap of the government. 
there's contradictory messages coming out here, but I think the thing I want to underscore here, and you've mentioned it a couple of times in the conversation, uh, public yeah. pronouncements uh, are not the same as negotiations. I mean, to say that, okay, I'm going to guarantee all-day kindergarten uh, means yeah. nothing. unless I mean, this this is a contract that you guys are working. Anybody who, who simply says, well, I'm going to take the government at their word, it's a contract. And if there's nothing being offered across the table in, in, in a contractual form, then there is no legitimate offer. And I, I, I'm questioning why the government is making these announcements and, and not saying, okay, now let's sit down and see whether or not this is going to get this thing done. And we've said that from the very beginning. Let's have respectful, uh, confidential conversations. Let's not bargain in the media. That never works for anybody. Uh, l- let's do this, do this quickly, do this effectively and efficiently. Uh, but from, from, from the very beginning, the government has not wanted to do that. They want to uh, try to score points. They, they spread falsehoods. Um, they're trying to, to win the media relations war as opposed to actually coming up to an agreement that helps kids and helps teachers. I, I mean, for those that are questioning this, and I understand that some people just have a bias against teachers, and, and maybe that's oh, yeah. been inbred from a, a, some of the past negotiations, uh, and some people from a political standpoint will just buy anything a, a, a certain political team will mention, you know, hook, line, and sinker, just because it's them that's saying it. I, I get that, and that's that's something we have to deal with in a society. But the fact is, is there's got to be somebody who's going to simply say, okay, I'm going to guarantee this and, and put it in writing. I mean, if, if, if somebody walked up to you and just said, Jeff, I'm going to double your salary, come work for me next week, leave your job, leave your benefits, leave everything, and I'll, don't worry, I'm going to make it financially viable for you. You're not going to do that on a whim. You're going to say, okay, where are the guarantees? Show me what you're going to do. Uh, prove to me that you're going to do that. And I'm, I'm getting the sense that's all the teachers are asking for here. Sit down at the table and put some paper in front of us that says you're going to uh, maintain all-day kindergarten and that you're not going to mess around with that and, and that you're not going to mess around with class sizes. I mean, th- there has been no negotiation. I mean, you, you can promise anything uh, outside of the negotiating table. That's absolutely right, and, and that's what we've done. Uh, to go back to the full-day kindergarten, uh, you know, a, a note passed across the table is not a commitment. It's it's not uh, something that uh, eighty three thousand teachers can can depend upon. Um, if if they're serious about it, then do what legally has to happen. Put it down in a contract. Discuss the actual language, uh, and put signatures to it. And then uh, you know, let's get on with teaching kids. Jeff, you've got uh, right now the series of one-day strikes, uh, the walkouts rather, uh, that have been occurring. Uh, you mentioned ramping up. If in half you're not getting any satisfaction, or there are no concrete negotiations uh, uh, by the end of next week, uh, what does ramping up entail? What what can, describe exactly what we might want to see or might might have to see, regardless of of what you or the government want to do right now. You, you the union has already indicated that there's there's going to be a, a a ramping up of this. Explain what that would mean. Yeah, well, besides the um, the rotating strikes, uh, which is something that, like I said, we've taken a pause on for the last for this week and the two weeks prior to this, um, but we're also uh, trying to ramp up in terms of our political actions. Uh, you know, trying to educate the public, trying to educate parents, uh, trying to convince the progressive conservatives this is not just teachers. Uh, this is the province, this is our communities, our students, uh, our parents, and that we're all on the same side, and it's the side that's in opposition to them. Uh, so when we say ramping up, it, it's getting that, uh, that public education piece, uh, getting that political um, actions as well. Uh, we really don't want to interfere and disrupt 
teaching, uh, kids coming to school, kids learning, kids moving on to the next grade. That's the last thing we've wanted. Uh, you know, our whole reason for entering into this uh, fight was to protect public education. And we're, we're really trying to protect it as much as we can. So that's what we mean by ramping up in this phase. With that in mind, is there a concern? Uh, I mean, as a teacher, is there a concern now about the students' well-being and the students' academic well-being uh, as this thing drags on? You know, <laughs> students' well-being is always in our mind, front and foremost. You know, we, um, you know we're, we're working a lot right now with violence and bullying uh, in the Board of Education, and we're doing that even though we're under work to rule because we, we care about kids. We wouldn't be in this profession unless we cared about kids. Um, so are we worried that children are being uh, harmed? Absolutely. Do we believe that kids are, are you know, suffering in a way that um, would, would uh, harm them long-term? No, we don't. And the reason we're fighting is so that they're not harmed long-term. Uh, it, it's an inconvenience. It's disruptive short-term. But really, uh, quality public education depends on this fight. When was the last time you were actually across the table from from the uh, the, the government representatives? Oh, I couldn't tell you the exact date, but it's at least a month ago. Okay, uh, if not longer. Uh, well, there's been a lot of going back and forth between uh, both <laughs> sides since then, but not officially. I guess that's that's really what this comes down to. That's right. Uh, they have kind of uh, the government has has cycled through the four education unions. I, you know, last week, the week prior to that, most of their announcement had to do with secondary education, which is more of a uh, Catholic teachers and, and OSSTF issue. Um, so uh, we haven't had conversations in quite a while. I, I don't know um, that uh, the other sides have been uh, any more successful than we have, though. Uh, I'm just reading a line from the the Wire story here that came across there the other day, and it's uh, Mr. Lecce says the government has made a commitment to maintain full-day kindergarten, as we've talked about, and fully fund supports uh, for special education and other learning needs negotiated in a previous contract. Uh, does yeah. that indicate to you that they want to go back to the status quo? I, I mean, I, being the skeptical person that I am, when somebody says that uh, we're going to fully fund uh, supports for special education, uh, that's a, uh, a rather you know, blatant, bland a phrase. I mean, does that mean you're going to staff it properly? Does that mean there's only going to be one person per classroom or three per school? I, he doesn't talk about specifics here. and I'd, I'd be a little apprehensive about that. Very much so. And, you know, what he's referring to is something called local priority funding which comes from the province, but, but boards can determine how they use it to help with special ed uh, programs uh, by board by board. Um, our board has seen over the years, last two years, about $3.5 million from that fund. Uh, and again, it comes down to they're not willing to put pencil to paper or pen to paper and actually state these are the amounts that we're willing to commit to, that we're willing to commit to them, not just for the upcoming year, but for the duration of the contract. Um, yeah, and those are our most vulnerable children. And so to kind of take his word for it when we know all the other things that have been said in the media, which are not true, it, it just it's asking too much. We're not going to, you know, gamble with, with those children uh, who need us the most. Because as I talk to parents of, of children that have special needs uh, who would benefit from these sorts of programs, 
uh, I'll make the statement. <clears throat> excuse me. I'll make the statement. That, that, you know, they they were underfunded before before this whole thing started because there weren't enough assistants in classrooms to help with teachers to help with kids with special needs in situations like this. And, and that goes for the Catholic board and for the public board as well. I mean, it sounds as a point, but there's a lot to talk about here. This is not nowhere near close to a resolution. There's still a lot of issues that aren't even on the table right now that both sides would like to see addressed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to go to special funding again, I agree with you wholeheartedly that uh, it, it's never been funded adequately. And that's just uh, not a matter of having enough people, though that, that is critical. It's having the right sorts of people. It's having social workers. It's having psychologists. It's having uh, all those experts uh, that you can, as a teacher, use to help with children. It also comes down to the number of, of kids with special needs per class. You know, the lower that number, the more individualized attention that those children can receive. Um, and, and those numbers, those levels have always been underfunded. Uh, and again, we're just trying to get back to those previously underfunded levels, never mind adequately funding them into the future. Well, and, and I want to be clear, when we talk about the problems with the system before all this started, uh, this goes back to the previous government, and the, probably the previous government before that one, too. It's been a long-standing oh, sure. problem. And, uh, you know, if the government really and truly wants to, quote-unquote, improve Ontario's education system, uh, they got to start looking at stuff like this. And you don't improve something by, by you know, taking funding away from it and saying, okay, you're going to have to do with less now. Uh, that that seems yeah. to be counter promotion to what we're trying to do here, counteractive to this. Um, it, and it's so cynical too to say that it, the reason we're doing that is to build resiliency in those children. That's a, that's a quote from from Leachy that that uh, Leche that um, you know, he said that you know bigger class sizes and, and lack of supports just builds resiliency in those sorts of children. So I mean that's insulting. That's uh, ridiculous. Well, it also shows an indication that he has absolutely no idea what he's talking about when he's talking about children that have special needs, uh, which, by the way, vary. There are, I mean, like snowflakes. I mean, there could be any number of different things that create learning disabilities or physical disabilities. And uh, this idea about, well, you know, we'll take stuff away from them to make them tougher is, is just a ludicrous idea and a ludicrous concept. Uh, I'd like to see him walk back on that one and, and actually get back to the table. Well, he, you know, I, I think when you have uh, the sort of... Uh opportunities he's had in life in terms of uh, Ivy League schools and, and private schooling. Uh, I, I don't think that question of having adequate supports ever came up to him. So, uh, you know, his privilege is showing. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that there's going to be at least some discussion here. I mean, that's job one, to get everybody into the same room across the table from each other. And sounds like we're not there yet. Uh, Jeff, we'll certainly stay in touch with us. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Bill. Always okay. a pleasure to talk. Jeff Sorensen, president of the Hamilton uh, Wentworth Elementary Teachers uh, Local, uh, who are hoping to get back to the table. And, and that's the takeaway from this, okay? Uh, because I know there's going to be more pronouncements from uh, the, pro the Premier and from the Education Minister about this. But if they're not at the bargaining table, it's not an offer. It's just rhetoric. Put it on paper, put it in front of the other side and say, take it or leave it and let's discuss that. And they're not doing that yet. So get down to business. And let's get this thing resolved. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, according to a number of uh, dailies, newspapers, uh, they say this could be the day that we find out who the Democrats are going to send into a battle against Donald Trump to see who's going to be the next president of the United States. It might be a little premature. 
some of those headlines anyway. Uh, but anyway, six vote st- states will be voting today in primaries, and it is pretty important, especially uh, Michigan and a couple of the other ones, with Biden, of course, with the incredible uh, uh, victory that he had, of course, a week ago on Super Tuesday. So can it happen? Can he repeat it again on this Tuesday? Well, let's uh, ask Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Elliot. How are yeah, you today? Good morning, Bill. I'm fine. Well, as the old saying goes, it's, uh, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Is she, uh, is she tuning up? <laughs> This is an election which had so many ups and downs, I think it's premature to predict anything much. I do, too. Uh, That's actually been the position you and I have been taking together since this started, and there was a lot of assumptions made along the way. But, yes, it is shaping up to be a situation where if Biden, who out of almost nowhere left for dead beside the road and came roaring back, if he continues with that kind of momentum, and particularly, as you mentioned, in Michigan, it's going to be very hard for anyone uh, to stop him, and in, in particular Sanders being the only viable candidate left. If he doesn't do well today, and in particular, remember he surprised everybody. He took Hillary, he beat Hillary Clinton in Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, and he was way down in the polls, as he is again today, uh, just on the eve of the voting. But uh, if he loses in Michigan, and if the kind of sweep that we saw on Super Tuesday continues, across those other states, including, uh, in particular, Mississippi and Missouri, uh, Washington State, Idaho, North Dakota, those are the other states. If uh, Sanders doesn't start coming in first and racking up some actual delegates, then yes, this could mean the beginning of a final choice for the Democrats to run against Donald Trump. Let me ask you about perspective here. And we started hearing these stories, though, of course, well, even before last Tuesday, after he won in uh, South Carolina last weekend, or the weekend before, I should say. <clears throat> and there was some speculation then that, that this was the culmination of an anti-Sanders movement. Uh, and the number of Democrats that, uh, that popped up on all the talk shows, of course, over the next couple of days said, no, 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 no. It's just the, the party coalescing over the, can- coalescing, rather, over the candidate that they think can actually take on and beat Donald Trump. But what, what's your read on that? The logic of the situation is that, yes, uh, this is a primary contest to choose a winner, and uh, an anti-Sanders, well, you could say it's an anti-everybody who doesn't vote for Biden, I suppose. There is real concern in the party, obviously, to choose a person who doesn't identify himself as a Democrat. He's moreover, but uh, as a socialist. Remember the Republicans, you and I have talked about this as well, have done an excellent job over decades of sliming the word socialist, so that even though it's respected in, around the world in other uh, democracies, in the United States the term has become synonymous with, uh, with a lot of effort behind it, with being a communist. And, of course, everybody knows communists are bad. So the successful effort to, de- to delegitimize the term socialist works against the democratic socialist of, of uh, Biden, but he, uh, of, sorry, of Sanders, but he also has taken positions in the past which make it very difficult. He remember honeymooned, this came as a surprise to me, he honeymooned in Moscow. Uh, He recently has said nice things about Castro. So this is not a a person that the party thought uh, could win against Donald Trump uh, correctly. And now they're coalescing around Biden. But let's remember a couple things. First of all, Biden became viable again in advance of the South Carolina vote in the debate when Joe Biden finally showed up. That is, in that debate, Bill, he finally became 
the kind of confident, uh, fire-breathing, um, I can heal the nation as well as win over other, you know, beat the Republicans. He became the kind of candidate who was electable. He had done so poorly in the debates until then, there was real doubts that he could be the one. That's why, that's why Bloomberg got in. He said, look, nobody's going to beat Trump if you're a Democratic Socialist. If Biden goes down, then somebody's got to be there. I'll be there. And he positioned himself to do so. When Biden came back in that debate and then capitalized on it by winning, winning big time in South Carolina, then that really positioned him, I think, to be the, the candidate. Where it was, it was like a butterfly coming out of the cocoon, though, because I mean, yeah. everybody, as I say, thought he was dead in the water, right. and, and I agree. I think his performance in the debate, the previous to the South Carolina primary, was an integral part of that. But the, how do you how do you account for this big momentum that seems to be developing right now, which obviously he hopes to carry on tonight? Yes, the momentum is that if it comes down between somebody that Donald Trump can so easily defeat and somebody that uh, might have a chance of winning. The party's coalescing around the one that has a chance of winning, and that's Joe Biden after his kind of rejuvenation as a candidate. So, and, and with him uh, come all the followers. I mean, all the people that were, you know, obviously competitors uh, uh, have all come on board with one possible, one obvious exception, rather, that being Elizabeth Warren. Uh, we don't know what she's going to do about this. I'm not so sure that that, that endorsement is, is something that he needs to put him over the top. But it's interesting to see how they have all fallen into line very quickly. Yes, uh, and again, this was unexpected. Sanders can go all the way. And remember, uh, he he carried the fight against Hillary Clinton to the point where people are saying, and this this is uh, now something Sanders has to consider if the momentum consent continues for Biden. Sanders has both the loyalty and the money to continue as he has before, but does he want to go down in history as the one who denied Hillary Clinton, the presidency, as many people are saying, that he was not enthusiastic in her, you know, he, he battled her to the very end and uh, rather lukewarmly then campaigned for her. A lot of her people either stayed home or even voted for Trump, a lot of Sanders people. So does he want to go down as the person who twice got Donald Trump elected? And that's a fundamental choice for Sanders if if the momentum for Biden continues. Well, and that's a concern, and I think a very legitimate one. I mean, I, I've still got in, in my mind that picture of, of, uh, of Sanders sitting at the Democratic Convention four years ago. And uh, I, I know that what he said was, okay, I'm going to support you know, Hillary Clinton. But he, he, excuse me, he looked like one of those old guys in the balcony on the Muppet Show. Yeah. I mean, he just yeah. he, was, he did not want to be there. He did not want to be there to, to support Hillary Clinton. And, and is, are we going to see Act 2 of that if, in fact, Biden wins this thing? That's his choice now. And a lot of people, even if he more enthusiastically supports, that's assuming Biden actually, this momentum continues. But if that's the case, does he want to go down in history as the guy who uh, all by himself got Donald Trump elected president of the United States a second time? Uh, and what, can he actually control the people that uh, are supporting him? He's got very loyal supporters, and for very good reasons, by the way. I mean, his... Uh, He's got two claims here. One is he's got a whole bunch of issues that people like, and they really do like them. Uh, the people who like Medicare for all, that is, why not have a single-payer? Hey, why not have a Canadian system? The American health system is clearly uh, almost incoherent. And you look at Canada, right, as Sanders says, look across the border, and they, they've got a way. So, but one of his claims is that he is going to win by mobilizing a movement that brings people to the polls who normally don't vote. 
and that has not been the case. Uh, there has been a surge recently uh, in the numbers, and that's one of the things, Bill, I wanted to watch for and I want to talk about a bit is, will the 2018 blue wave continue? That is, the surge of voters that took the House uh, away from the Republicans and gave it to the Democrats, they did that in part because a large number of voters showed up, and I was waiting to see if that's going to continue. And in Super Tuesday, it did continue. Large numbers of people did show up, but they weren't people that Sanders brought to the polls. They broke, in fact, they were traditional voters among Democrats, and they broke uh, overwhelmingly for Biden. Um, Biden carried Texas, after all, without having a, you know, in Tennessee, and it just crushing defeat for Sanders in states where Biden hadn't, didn't even have a campaign underway. So the surge is needed. Sanders promised he would deliver the surge. The surge is continuing, but it's apparently at the minute continuing without Sanders. The other element to this, too, and I want to use a phrase that, uh, that is, is used quite often in, in analysis of what's going on, it's the, the down ticket uh, right. votes, uh, meaning not necessarily who's going to run for president, uh, it's, you know, the people that are running for Congress or for the Senate or even gubernatorial yeah. races, whatever the case might be. Uh, you're branded by the leader of your party. I mean, you know, if you're a Republican, you're a Donald Trump Republican because that's all there is. Yeah. And, and, and they don't want, from what I'm hearing, an awful lot of those down ticket uh, Democrats don't want Bernie Sanders... Uh, out up there because they figure that's going to hurt their chances of getting elected. Yes, that's an excellent point, Bill, and, and it's one I was hoping to come to. One of the reasons that Biden is surging, surging now over Sanders is precisely the fear that they would lose, the Democrats would lose all those down-ticket uh, opportunities if Biden uh, lost, Sanders won, and Sanders gets thoroughly smeared and then creamed by the president, by Trump, and they are gearing up for that. Uh, remember, they really feared Biden and put a unseemly tactics in place to eliminate Biden as a contender, and it looked as if they succeeded. Had Sanders then been at the head of the ticket, the, the down tickets uh, uh, losses could have been severe. And one of the things to keep in mind about those is that the gerrymandering of districts, which has so favored Republicans, because the Koch brothers and others, when nobody was looking much, paid close attention to the to the races at the state level, those state levels want Republican. The Republicans rewrote the electoral districts to favor Republicans. Now a lot of those are in jeopardy if there's a Democratic surge. Uh, whoever controls the ability to draw electoral districts can control future elections. And that's also at stake, and that's also on the minds of Democrats. And that also, I think, has a lot to do, uh, as you were pointing out, in effect, for the Biden surge. You can tell, obviously, that, I mean, the polls that were indicative of what's going on here. I, I just looked at the, I think it was the CNN poll from last night right. uh, online this morning, and Biden's ahead in every one of those, uh, and by a significant margin, uh, which I guess would, at first blush, give everybody a great sense of confidence to say, okay, this is going to be another big night for him. But I, I thought the same thing you did. Uh, you know, four years ago, everybody thought Hillary was going to win in Michigan, and uh, mm. because she was that far ahead, too. Right. Are, are you anticipating at least one or two surprises tonight? I'm anticipating staying up very late. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, we don't know until the votes are counted. Uh, the polls are favorable for Biden. There's been a lot of polling, and one of, the, one of the polls shows that Biden is well ahead nationally over Sanders and also well ahead uh, in terms of being able to defeat Trump. Uh, but in the eight key battleground states, that is, the states that will actually likely 
determine the outcome of the next election. Biden is also leading more than Sanders over Trump, but it's very narrow mar- margins. It's going to be a tight election uh, as, as it looks today, according to those same polls, not just for Biden and Sanders, but whoever the Democrats choose. The states that will swing the election one way or another are still very going to be hotly contested the way the polls look today. And that's, by the way, I want to... Uh, you and I have really good conversations because you give us time to do so. The Bloomberg factor should not be overlooked in this case. Bloomberg put himself in the race because he said, somebody's got to beat Trump, I'm the one to do it. Now I'm, I, I say I'm not, I'm backing out. His support, his machinery, he has a capacity to help carry swing districts, those down ballots uh, that you talked about, and swing districts, not only for Congress, but uh, lower house, but for the upper house, the Senate, and a lot of those are up. If his machinery stays in place, and if he puts his muscle behind the presumably Biden candidacy, that's the one he supports, uh, that can be a big factor in, in who, who governs in America. And, and I know he was criticized for being a, a Johnny-come-lately Democrat you know, by uh, a number of people that are still in the race at that time anyway. But he has a passion for defeating Donald Trump. He, he does, does not like Donald Trump. And no matter what, I mean, he's, he's not going to be one of these bitter guys that says, well, I got a raw deal from the Democrats. Uh, his focus right now is, is laser-focused, really, on defeating Trump. So I, I'd, I'd be surprised if he didn't put his muscle behind this. This is why I was saying we should continue to keep an eye on what Bloomberg does, because he is a formidable uh, campaigner. Uh, he, he has put together an apparatus and apparently has promised the people in that apparatus he's going to pay them even if he's not the candidate through November. So he has a machinery in place that he can add to the Democrats' machinery that might make this next uh, election not the foregone conclusion for Trump that it was a very short time ago, but an actual contest and uh, with an unknown uh, outcome. Well, speculate for just a second. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Because uh, I'm hearing talk, and I'm sure you are as well, about Biden's run. And uh, let's assume he does well again uh, tonight. And uh, and if not, puts it away. At least uh, gives himself a, a bit of a cushion here. And there are still some very important ones, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, places like that uh, still Florida. to come. And Florida, certainly Florida as well. But there's a lot of talk I'm seeing online right now um, from quote-unquote informed sources that Biden's already decided who his VP is going to be, or at least the nominee for for the ticket anyway. Uh, and and the indication seems to be it's Kamala Harris. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I thought uh, earlier that she had a lock on that position. That is, uh, unlikely to win the nomination, but positioned herself inevitably to be the vice presidential nominee because she's a person of color and a woman. And also from California, which would be very helpful, although the Democrats will carry California but the question of who's going to be the vice president is important for two reasons. One is, these are really old people. <laughs> and I've been saying for some time, hey, uh, age is less and less relevant in politics. Uh, look at Malaysia. And, uh, but you have to pay close attention to the vice presidential choice. So somebody that has you know, the confidence of America. And that was one of the advantages of Biden under, under Obama, is that everybody was going to be comfortable enough having Biden as the vice presidential choice because, you know, he, he could run the country. And uh, now the question is who to put on the ticket, assuming it's Biden. And she, Kamala Harris is not the only candidate. Obviously, uh, Amy Klobuchar is a candidate. Yeah. Uh, Stacey Abrams is a candidate. Having a woman on the ticket is uh, highly likely. As to which woman, woman, that's going to depend an awful lot on the electoral politics and the electoral reckoning 
uh, when it comes down to whose home state is going to be absolutely essential. What, what uh, constituency is going to be brought along or left out uh, based on that choice? And incidentally, keep an eye on the Republicans. Right now, uh, Vice President Pence has been given the job of overseeing, you know, keeping America safe uh, for, for the virus. But, you know, that could be considered a fall guy position <laughs> if now that he's dispensable. So if the Democrats pick a strong woman candidate, it's not impossible that Pence could be dumped for, uh, for example, Nikki Haley. And she would be a formidable addition to that ticket. Well, I mean, Trump's fired everybody else. Why not the VP? Uh, yes, and and uh, that, that rumor's been around for a couple of years, though, yes, hasn't and it? Mike Pompeo, I think, has his eye on that job, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Talk about social climber. So there's, there's a lot of politics within the politics here. But uh, having a woman on the ticket is likely to be seen as uh, not only an asset, but probably a, close to a requirement uh, for the Democrats. It's not a certainty. Uh, Sherrod Brown of Ohio would be anybody's good choice. A Democrat who can carry Ohio can help swing the election. But having two white guys on the ticket, uh, not so much. Amy Klobuchar has the real advantage of being able to help strengthen those Midwest states that went for uh, Trump last time. Of course, Lunch Bucket Joe at the top of the ticket is supposed to be the one who would do that, so you can then turn it over to somebody else like Kamala Harris, etc. So there's a lot of reckoning who goes into that goes into who's going to be the VP choice. I, I know that I know we're just about out of time here. I know that everybody identifies Kamala Harris, of course, from California. That's where she cut her teeth in, in politics, and obviously when she was a, a prosecutor. But she's originally from Michigan, isn't she? I'm not sure of that. It's from but the I, east, anyway. Well, what's interesting is that her. It's Kamala Devi Harris. Uh, she identifies herself as a black American, but she's half South Asian Indian. And that's an increasingly important constituency in key states. Uh, there's reports she wears a sari at home and identifies strongly with her South Asian Indian background. So uh, that might be an, a factor in the choice. That's another constituency to keep an eye on. Ellie, better get have a nap this afternoon. It's going to be a long night. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Always a pleasure. Thanks again for this Take today. Ellie Tepper, of course, uh, from Carlton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.